Well, good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, good evening, whatever time of day it is for you. It's morning here in the studios at 3CR with Left After Breakfast. Susanna here with you, and a little later I'll be joined by the usual suspects, including, including the oh-so-elusive Bagman. If you're a regular listener to Left After Breakfast, you would know that I like to start the show with Bella Chow. I have half a dozen or more renditions of that lovely melody, Bella Chow, but something different this morning. The other week, on International Women's Day, I was in a pub in West Melbourne, The Drunken Poet, and I recommend that pub listener... Very nice little place. And I had the great pleasure of seeing a band called Vados. Three women, they were just incredible. I love them. And I'm going to check out where they're playing next, track them down and go and see them and hear them again. They were brilliant. Three Australian women and they love rom music. And they've travelled through Eastern Europe, you know, through Hungary and Romania and such places and picked up a lot of music style from there. And wow, were they fantastic. What an act. If you ever see them advertised anywhere as performing that night, that day, do yourself a favour and go and see them. The name of the band is Vardos, V-A-R-D-O-S. And let's have a listen to them.
listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. And we were just listening there to Vardos, not the kind of band I would normally expect to hear in a pub in Melbourne. Mind you, I haven't been to a pub for a long time, so it was really good to come across The Drunken Poet, which was a terrific little place run by a woman and really, really nice crowd, quiet, small, very homely. If I were into the business of recommending pubs, I would recommend The Drunken Poet in West Melbourne. But I'm not. I'll just say I had a really good time there on International Women's Day. Uh, Good morning. You're listening to 3CR, the only radio left. I want to talk for a minute about pork barrelling. We know that that term refers to politicians spending taxpayer money on their constituents primarily or only to generate political support. It's been suggested that the phrase derived from when enslaved people would scramble for their shares of salted pork while the slave owners gave it to them in barrels as a reward and that dates back to the second half of the 19th century. It's 2022 and our Prime Minister, Scott, and Barnaby Joyce have decided to give flood victims as little financial help as possible, except for some voters living in the National Party electorate around Lismore, so the two of them can instead use this money to buy votes at the federal election, which is due in two months' time. So the bottom line is they're stealing from some of the poorest people in the country, some of whom have lost everything during the floods. They're taking the money to buy votes so that Scott and Barnaby Joyce can try and stay in power. One person in on this pork barrelling scam is Bridget McKenzie, Minister for Emergency Management. She's another Federal National Party MP who has totally failed Queensland and New South Wales flood victims. But the problem here is that both Joyce and Mackenzie, a very large percentage of the flood victims are in rural areas, the part of Australia that the National Party claims to represent. That makes the pork barrelling scheme even more obvious and even more revolting. Let's hope that the Nationals' failure to support the victims will be fresh in people's minds when they vote. I mean, if the National Party can't stand up for rural Australians in a time of need, well, what bloody good are they? And now we've got the New South Wales Liberal Party and Scott pointing the finger at each other again for failing the flood victims. It's just about identical to the 2019-2020 fires when they try to blame each other again for the government's failures. This is insanity. Absolute insanity. Barnaby Joyce is actually committing financial fraud with public money by giving extra financial support to flood victims in, in a National Party electorate, but not in a Labour Party electorate, even though survivors are in the same town of Ballina. And while I mention Bridget McKenzie, why is she still a senator? 
Are we supposed to just forget about the $100 million sports rort scandal? And of course, this was all under the instruction of Prime Minister Scott. And then Mackenzie threatened defamation proceedings against Senator Rice to bully Senator Rice. And at the same time, we mustn't forget Peter Dutton, also exposed for rorting millions of taxpayers' money. There have been billions of dollars of pork barrelling exposed in the last couple of years. I mean, the whole country knows that Bridget McKenzie is a fraudster, and I reckon a thief. Financial journalist Michael Pascoe reports that the federal government's community development grant is a $3 billion slush fund for pork barrelling. In a garden, what a garden, only happy faces bloom there, and there's never any room there for a worry or a gloom there. Oh, there's music, and there's dancing, and a lot of sweet romancing, when they play the polka. Listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. While thinking about the government response to the flood and the poor buggers who've lost everything, 
and who will be wondering if they're going to have any assistance at all from this government. What about the people from the bushfire? Have any of them seen any money? Well, apparently $80 million has been dispersed somewhere, but that was from the Red Cross. There are, There's so much money sitting there in a bank account earning interest instead of being paid out to the people who suffered so dreadfully during the bushfires. So we can just, you know, assume this will happen again to the flood victims. The moral here, listener, is, you know, don't get stuck in a bushfire. Don't have your house burned down. Don't get stuck in a flood. Don't let your house be swept away because you'll really be in deep shit if you do because there's no one there in this government who can give you a hand. Your taxes, our taxes, everybody's taxes, which are placed into an emergency fund, are not being used for that. But we know what it's being used for, don't we? It's going to be for pork barrelling. And another thing about this terrible flood and its aftermath is the fact that the army has been called in, the ADF, and they're not doing too good a job of it, really. And I wonder, why do we even have an army? Are we about to go out and invade some other country? Oh, I shouldn't say that too loudly. Peter Dutton may hear me. But I think you know what I'm saying. What is the army for? We've always used them to assist us in these terrible emergency matters. That also brought to mind how the ADF responded in this occasion and how they responded in 1974 in Cyclone Tracy. Do you remember that? I certainly do. Terrible thing. But the ADF had a very different response than the one that they have now. The ADF had a much more difficult job 48 years ago in Darwin. At that time, we had troops deployed within one day, people vested with unprecedented authority and a confident and capable public service which used great imagination to perform at lowest cost and in really quick time the major job of national reconstruction, rebuilding the ruined city of Darwin after it was levelled by the cyclone. The whole city was flattened. Almost the entire population of more than 50,000 people was evacuated by air within a week, which was a shorter period than the full deployment of army resources to northeastern New South Wales this week. The two military officers in charge of organising initial emergency relief were General Alan Streeton and his deputy, Colonel Van Vardenager, and they found out about that disaster early on the Christmas morning. Their military rank helped enormously in quickly cobbling together emergency materials, loading them onto a Hercules and setting off with General Streeton on board for Darwin just after lunchtime on Christmas Day. Both Streeton and Vardenager were in the Commonwealth Directory and they could be phoned and they thought it part of their duty to explain to reporters and to the public what they were doing, what they were thinking and why. They didn't behave like this massive, cumbersome and almost entirely useless modern successor 
as if speaking to someone in the press was some kind of prima facie breach of the Crimes Act. Nor did they hold back until anything they said had been cleared with the Minister's office. Nor did they demand questions in writing or use a thick screen of public relations people to obscure the truth and to promote the Minister's view of the world. Those older arrangements were far more subtle and accountable and they could involve far more Commonwealth people than were deployed even during the 2019-2020 bushfires. They were far more effective and many times cheaper than anything the Commonwealth manages these days. In theory, the current body coordinates matters between Commonwealth agencies and sometimes between individual states. This task, once accompanied far more effectively by ad hoc arrangements between relevant public servants and the Minister, now consumes whole battalions of Commonwealth officials writing memos to each other. And it's done badly, as anyone watching could see while questions of emergency money distribution and entitlement got caught in the spin cycle this week. We also had the interesting spectacle of the relevant minister calling on homeless people with no possessions, calling on them to contact Centrelink via the internet or by the notoriously incompetent, inhuman and inhumane phone service. Back in 1974, senior public servants began arriving at work unbidden by lunchtime on Christmas Day and began meeting and advising their ministers. Even junior public servants drifted in, recognising, of course, that the victims needed help. The Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam, was overseas at the time, although he got back to Darwin a bloody sight more quickly than Morrison did from Hawaii. The acting Prime Minister was Dr Jim Cairns, who was for the next few months the most popular man in Australia particularly for his calm, compassionate and empathetic management. Cabinet met while Stretton was still in the air to Darwin and over the aircraft's radio. Cairns promised him and his deputy all the authority they needed to plan and implement a massive relief effort. That involved more than the evacuation of the city. If you consider it, it involved planning, organising and implementing Everything, everything, finding out who had supplies and where and if and how they could be commandeered. Ships were chartered. By nightfall, Admiral Tony Sinnott had organised a Navy ship to set off from Sydney with emergency items. This was organised by nightfall on Christmas Day with most sailors on leave and while communications with Darwin were completely shut off, no one was saying that they couldn't move with all speed. Cyclone Tracy caused the biggest peacetime diversion of resources before or since. Ordinary government continued, but extraordinary government was being performed. Ministers were kept informed, and their views, or at least those of Cairns and Whitlam in particular, were incorporated into decision. But no one was sitting around waiting for authority to do things which were necessary. They weren't sitting around waiting for ministerial signatures. They weren't sitting around waiting for press statements to be checked by the media managers. 
Many tasks were organised by public servants, social workers and volunteers, mostly from the Department of Social Security and the Social Welfare Commission. No minister had his own personal photographer on official visits to Darwin. No one claimed the right to exclude the media, and no one, least of all Whitlam, used back exits to avoid members of the public likely to be critical. Van Vardenegger thought that communications was a primary part of the operation, not public relations, not political spin, but information, facts. Perhaps there's a lesson in that for Scott. Perhaps also for the public relations team at the Department of Defence and for the people doing heaven knows what at emergency management. Emergency Management Australia and the National Recovery and Resilience Agency are supposed to combine expertise in natural disaster response, recovery and resilience. They're supposed to work with affected communities and all levels of government and industry. I wonder what the people of Cabago would say about that. They are now into their third year of learning self-reliance. Perhaps for want of a handshake. On Christmas Eve of 74, the warning sounded out on all the broadcast stations, a great storm was near about. The boys and girls asleep in bed, tomorrow was their day. Their mums and dads all prayed the mighty storm would turn away. Santa never made it into Darwin. Disaster struck at dawn on Christmas Day Santa never made it into nowhere A big wind came and blew the town away Christmas morning was a nightmare as Cyclone Tracy struck It ripped apart the buildings like an atom bomb that struck It twisted iron girders and it flattened all the trees The might of such a cyclone must be seen Santa never made it into Darwin Disaster struck at dawn on Christmas Day Santa never made it into Darwin A big wind came and blew the town away Many boats put out Sadden, 
As the news came through, a devastated city that must be built anew. For suffering and heartbreak to happen in this way, a natural disaster to come on Christmas Day. I didn't actually intend to give you some history about Cyclone Tracy hitting Darwin in 1974, but it just ended up being so. I was thinking of the response of the ADF then and now and comparing the governments of that time to this time. But we will be hearing a little bit of history from the 3CR resident historian shortly. But in the meantime, I have some bad news for you. The bagman, unfortunately, won't be with us today. He's back in the hospital again. So it will be in there for another couple of days. So all the best to you, bagman. I really hope you're back on your feet soon. This is getting past a joke, mate. Come on, you can fight your way out of this one. The media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth and the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning, well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare, spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in, it's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people, and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. 
Good morning again, Glenn. How are you, my dear? Do you recall the old days when TV first arrived on Australian shores? The old days when we first had TV in Australia. I do remember when we first had TV in Australia, yeah, because we had the first TV in my street. Did you know? And I had a lot of new friends that year. You would have. They came around to watch the test pattern with me. <laughs> the test pattern was a favourite all around Melbourne. And the TV was, wasn't on from three o'clock till some rather, but there was a kiddie show on ABC and we'd watch the test pattern, which was a red Indian with a wall bonnet. Oh. Until you got the five, four, three, two, one or something, and then the kiddie show. But epilogue closed the day. Yes. It came on at midnight till 8am or so, goodness. And there was a 6 o'clock news on There was Eric Pierce on 9, I recall. But followed by, there's a coming under your bed. He was on Sunday mornings when I remember him. But he was after the news. He was on Sunday mornings before the wrestling on Channel 9. Uh, What was your favourite show when you were a kiddie? The ABC Children's Show. Did you watch... um, did you watch Robin Hood? Riding through the Glen. That's the one. Robin Hood with his band of men, feared by the bad, loved by the good. Robin Hood. Yes, I liked Robin Hood. Do you know who made that series? Do you know the history of that series? History of the series? No. No, they were made in the UK by Sapphire Films. And Sapphire Films was set up in the UK by a woman called Hannah Weinstein. And she was an American communist. Yeah. She left America in the late 40s, the Cold War, and the House of Un-American Activities Committee being established. Oh, yeah. And she got away from America. She went to Paris, then to England, and the American Communist Party, the Hollywood branch, gave her money to make films. And one of the most famous series sapphire films made was Robin Hood. Oh, right. Feared by the bad, loved by the good, robbed the rich to feed the poor. They also made films like William Tell as well. They made a whole lot of adventure films. And um, uh, Hannah Weinstein did. She got a hold of script writers and stuff in the US who were blacklisted, who had lost their passports. And they were stuck in LA, Washington, New York. And she got them to write pseudonyms and paid them money for doing the scripts of these stories because they, they couldn't find work back in the US. Yeah. And she created work in the UK for them by Robin Hood and these sort of shows. And... Um, we don't hear about Hannah Weinstein or her work, do we? William Tell. That's right, Hannah Weinstein and William Tell. South Park Films made a series of programs from the early 50s to the early 60s. And I think the two most famous I remember are Robin Hood and William Tell. And Hannah Weinstein was the producer. She was the brains behind it. William Tell was a revolutionary, wasn't he? That's right. But he's mainly remembered for shooting an apple off someone's head. Mm. Well, if you were Robin Hood, the uh, the rich the rich were very uh, self serving. They sort of acolytes, sort of crawlers, like the food chain, and uh, the robbers, the Robin Hood band. I mean, they were, they were merry men, and they fought the good fight against oppression and injustice. And Robin Hood was a, a, a metaphor for fighting the good fight, which you couldn't obviously say in the US, could you? Or the UK, or Australia. They had a wise of these black band writers producing wonderful kid shows, like Robin Hood and William Tell to. To throw our attention to offensive, so to get injustice and to fight against oppression. I can't remember the actor's name. Uh, I think, if my memory is right, Richard Green. Richard Green, of course, it was Richard Green. 
He was the one. And another support of her. Have you heard of Christina Steed? Christina Steed, no. She was an Australian novelist. She was um, a contemporary of Jane Devaney, uh, Catherine Susanna Pritchard. Uh, Christina Steed wasn't a, a Communist Party member. She was a fellow traveller, but she wrote a lot of work also for Sapphire Films with Hannah Weinstein. And again, you've never heard of Hannah Weinstein, Christina Steed. They have written out about history of these people. We don't hear their stories. And that's why in the past, this segment has been called Our Story, Bear Story, Your Story. His story, her story. And we've forgotten these names. And they're part of our struggle. So Hannah Weinstein, Christina Steed, they were great thinkers for our cause. They're fighting depression and injustice. And again, where else up in three shall we hear these people being mentioned? Well, I'll certainly remember their names in future. Hannah Weinstein and Christina Steed. Christina, that's of course Australian, you said. She was, she was from Sydney. She, um, she went to Paris in the 1930s. She uh, Spent, oh, time, luck. spent time in, in Spain in the Civil War. She married Jack Blake, the communist. Um, then she was banned from returning to Australia. And she, uh, there was an award she lost. There was an award she should have received for her literary work. But because she wasn't in Australia, she wasn't eligible to get it. You know how they stole... Um, who was the famous filmmaker who lost his... Um, Wolfram Birchall. You know how they stole his passport? Yes, yes. Similar to her. They didn't steal her passport. They said, oh, basically, you're not in Australia. So you won the award, but you're not here, so you're not going to get it. So they had ways of, you know, the blacklists in the US weren't in the US alone. The blacklists occurred here too. It's a bit like Christina Steed and various others who, falling suppression, had to pay a penalty. But they're important names for us to know. It's worrying though, Glenn, because that attitude towards journalists is here again. I suppose it never went away, but it was hidden and couldn't really come out and run rampant. Now I see journalists, good journalists, being sneered at, derided and sued. Not just being sued, but being threatened also. We're seeing the rise of these, these fascist mobs and um, journalists and television crews being threatened and assaulted at these rallies, these, these gatherings of the Dunning-Kruger Nazis. And um, yeah. I mean, we're living in scary times. And I suppose people like Christina Steig went through and um, Hannah Weinstein and the blacklisted rise in the US... It might happen again, and um, we've got some very unpleasant things happening in the world, my dear. Well, thank you for reminding me, or actually letting me know about these these producers, these heroes. No, we're heroes. I said, and they use shows like Robin Hood, William Tell, to show how to fight oppression, but it's, it's real. But yeah, and the powers of Ross, they're not wonderful people, they're slippery, sleazy characters. And these shows expose them in a, in a way which you can enjoy and appreciate. So, um, yeah, listeners, if you weren't tuned to Three South today, you wouldn't know these stories. And until I return, in the words of my forebears, Chocular. <laughs> through the glen Robin Hood, Robin Hood with his band of men feared by the bad loved by the good Robin Hood Robin Hood Robin Hood He called the greatest archers to a tavern on the green They vowed to help the people of the king They handled all the trouble on the English country scene and still found plenty of time to sing. Robin Hood. 
Hood, Robin Hood, riding through the glen. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, with his band of men. Feared by the bad, loved by the good. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, Robin Hood. Ah, oh, my word. That song, the theme song from Robin Hood, <laughs> it all just comes straight back to me instantly. It's amazing how your memory can work like that. I'm not sure what I had for tea last night, but I remember all the words of Robin Hood. I love that line, they handled all the trouble on the English country scene and still found plenty of time to sing. Now, that's a, <laughs> that's a happy mob and fellas for you, isn't it? And all the time, Robin Hood was produced by a communist. I didn't know that at the time. I don't suppose any of us knew. But the story, I suppose, of Robin Hood, at least the one, the story that's been given to us, nice washed-down version of robbing the rich to give to the poor, that's a good place to start. I'm not sure if those old TV episodes of Robin Hood explained that it was actually the rich robbing the poor in the first place. The rich robbing the poor. Perhaps it wasn't, I missed it. But in any case, I like the idea, rob the rich and give to the poor. 3 I should be careful when I talk about robbing the rich to give to the poor. And what's the other expression that came to my mind? Eat the rich. But I don't really mean that. I think. But I see that the Global Hunger Index shows soaring levels of hunger among the poor and among the working populations around the world. Rising food prices are a critical contributing factor in the growth of world hunger, rapidly mounting inflation and the disruption of supply chain networks. Hunger remains at a serious or extremely alarming level in nearly 50 countries. Three factors drive the rising levels of world hunger, which have driven 41 million people, that's 41 million people, to the very edge of famine. And those factors are, not surprisingly, conflict, climate change, and the devastation brought about by COVID-19. All of this can seem a long way away to us, you know, even though it's 41 million people out there pushed to the edge of, of actual starvation. It doesn't seem to really impact upon us in Australia. We don't feel that so much. Crikey, yes, there are plenty of poor people around and plenty of people that need a good meal. And I have been hungry at different times in my life. And maybe you have been, listener, at some time during your life, hungry, when there's no food in the cupboard and you don't have a couple of bob to go and get some. But it's not the same as these 41 million people in places across the world. But we're feeling it more and more. And it hits us more and more when it's in our own home. Such small things as the price of canned food going up. For example, a can of tomatoes. A tin of SPC tomatoes hasn't gone up for a decade, but that's just about to change because 
high iron ore prices, more expensive tins, rising fuel costs to affect distribution, and even record wheat prices will see more expensive dry pasta. So every week we're seeing higher prices. Stock up your cupboards. Make sure you've got the canned stuff that you can make meals with. And make sure you've got pasta and rice in there. All the charitable agencies, you know, the ones that give out food, are saying they expect a huge rush by the end of April. And in some more bright news, I see that the National Rental Affordability Scheme, a Commonwealth scheme, of course, which provides assistance for 22,000 homes, which people rent nationwide, assist them paying the rent because they're living underneath the poverty line, I see it's closing down. So there'll be a few more people. Well, how many people live in 22,000 properties? Quite a lot of people. So there'll be a lot more people homeless because they will not be able to afford market rent. Market rent, remember, is two-thirds of job seeker. You know, that payment that used to be called the dole. Market rent is one half of the disability allowance and almost one half of the age pension. But, you know, that's the market. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. And let's hear from Comrade Natasha. The Anzacs Highway Holiday. 1. Lawn. At Erskine Beach, warning of strong currents, slippery and submerged rocks, I watch families, people from across the world, cluster on blankets, bob on the surf, build castles in the sand. Do they remember the day of the Anzacs, so far away on another beach in another cove? Or other days from other wars cast across oceans? The ocean laps and curls, booms and calls, roars and squeals her song as the tide draws her random etchings into the reef of rocks, sculpted in blocks and lace, pockmarked like the moon's face. Flags, eye-patched by the Union Jack, fly half-mast along the great road, overlooking the great ocean, carved out of the landscape by those who returned from the Great War, the war to end all wars. The journey curved like sickles round the belly of the mountains, where the bush meets the sea, where the rivers snake and splurge in ice-blue to turquoise, stretching back to the arc where rain clouds meet a beam of sun. The hills roll out as if to honour those who split the rocks like dragon claws, clipped in crags, clinging on for dear life, lest they be swept up in white-nosed waves, in growling tides, greedy for land, bulldozed to the shore. 
In going down, the sun darkens the weary sky. A sudden blast of silver lines the western front of clouds. A red tinge begins to blot out the beach ball day. 2. History The biggest war memorial in the world, the Anzacs Highway, now cast in bronze plaques along the tourist track, was the labour of 13 years by 3,000 soldiers and sailors who laid the foundations of peace in a stone and mortar monument to those fallen on the fields. I look at men looking back at me from nearly 80 years gone past, in black and white, leaning on picks and shovels, in hats, shirts, vests, jackets, boots, tiered along the eastern view, ready to break the back of the mountain, girding a link along the shipwreck coast in brawn and sweat, sheer sweat and muscle. 3. Tourist Trail At Wire River, rubber-necked and sharp fin shadows line the surf line. Paddling out before the winter chill for thrills snatched from the seaside. Looking out from Mount Defiance, thinking on the hard labour of those who cleared the way in the face of perpendicular cliffs, now sealed in black and white barriers, slow turnouts, sign-posted reflections past mileposts, now yellow kilometres per hour, and hairpins round each bend. Rocks greet the sea, lapping, belting, cracking, belching, crashing upon the land, as though the whole earth was tipped up. Thank you, Comrade Natasha. And that brings me to play a piece of music about the war to end all wars. Well, how do you do, young Willie McBride? Do you mind if I sit here down by your graveside and rest for a while neath the warm summer sun? I've been walking all day and I'm nearly done. I can see by your gravestone you were only nineteen when you joined the great fallen. Well, I hope you died well And I hope you died clean Or young Willie McBride Was it slow and obscene? Did they beat the drums slowly? Did they play the fife slowly? Did they sound the death march As they lowered you down? Did the band play the last post and chorus? Did the pipes play the flowers of the forest? Did you leave there a wife or a sweetheart? 
That lie here, no, why did they die? And did they believe when they answered the call? Did they really believe that this war could end wars? When the sorrow, the suffering, the glory, the pain, the killing and dying were all done in vain. Sound. 
times I've heard it I still always get that big lump in the throat you know what I mean the green fields of France I know so many people I have so many friends and we have a connection to World War One, the war to end all wars that someone from our family is still lying in a grave somewhere not here in Australia, but somewhere fighting for the great trade war. 3.0 And now it's my pleasure to bring you the authentic voice of the BL from the bush. Yeah, g'day comrade, listener. It's the uh, BL from the bush calling in. I hope these are all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Goes for you too, bagman. Hope you're up and about, causing as much mischief as you can, or as you do. Carrying on from last week, listener, um, I really encourage you again to uh, to get out and, and talk to people, your friends, or anyone who wants to listen, tram, train, bus, car, wherever, down the street, down the shops, about the inaction the ineptitude, the bad governance, bad leadership of this coalition government, this vindictive, cruel, heartless, see a struggling head, kick it uh, regime that we have here. It's just a few things I'd like to bring your attention to. Well, not so much bring your attention to, but, but just remind you, because I'm sure that you're all aware of it, some of the stuff that this mob hasn't done, have done, and how they've wasted, completely wasted the taxpayers' money, your money. So here we go. Uh, it's just a few things. Just rough, you know, because this mob have been around for eight years or more, uh, listener. This is just a few things that uh, really stand out. He had the, uh, the Centrelink and Robo debt. Well, there was the NDIS, same, same scenario. There's the cashless debit card. This thing is there. It, it's not It's not a scare campaign or anything like that. It's there. You can look it up. It is legislative. It is there. It's past the houses. It's there, sitting there, waiting to be used. And then there's a sexual harassment in the workplace up there in the House of Debauchery. Then there's the current the COVID vaccine stroll out. Embarrassment all around. Bad leadership, uh, inept governance and... Then there was the job keeper rorts. Then you had sports rorts, car park rorts. Well, there was just a complete and utter waste of taxpayers' money. And the only reason that they those those car parks and, and sports rorts were there was to keep themselves in, in power. Pork bowling with their electrics just to keep themselves up there, their asses on a bit of leather. Then there was the uh, Banking Royal Commission. 
well, you know, they were they were dragged, howling and screaming and kicking for that to um, to be orchestrated. And look what just look at what that uncovered. Yeah, well, that's about it this week, uh, comrades and listener. Um, I'll go out in the same old way. Dare to struggle, dare to win. If you don't fight, you lose. Good morning from left after breakfast. Yep, good morning from left after breakfast. See you same time, same place, next week.